I do invite you to open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 17 today. If you're using the Blue SV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find that text on page 687. The title of our sermon this morning is Weeping, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are destruction, cry, and all. Back in 2008, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals aired a commercial wherein uh, Sarah McLaughlin's song, Angel, played melodramatically over videos of sad-looking cats and dogs, and various texts on the screen appeared calling for, for pity and help, and McLaughlin herself appears and makes uh, a plea for, for viewers to donate, make a pledge, give money, and save a life. Now, whatever you think about this commercial and the string of commercials that it launched with, with other songs of hers and these sad-looking animals, we have to recognize that there is something powerful about forcing someone, or at least inviting someone, to look at poor, weak, and helpless beings who are suffering. This is especially true if the suffering is that of humans, despite what our, our present culture, by and large, might think. But human suffering is especially saddening, and perhaps even truer is if the suffering is that of children. There are countless videos and campaigns of people in third world countries showing sad-looking, malnourished children standing around aimlessly. These, children, these, these ads, these um, commercials often pop up at Christian concerts, and they ask you to, to make a pledge to, to adopt, in a sense, this, this child. Now, while we may say that entire video campaigns for cats and dogs may perhaps be over the top, and at times the way in which the pitch is made... Uh, regarding support for these destitute children might come off sometimes as manipulative, perhaps not even always made in good faith. There is something real that is being tapped into here. Sometimes we have to be confronted squarely and directly with the realities of suffering in our world in order to really begin to care about suffering in our world which is one of the benefits of reading the book of Lamentations. As I said, we're in Lamentations chapter 2, and one of the things to note about Lamentations 2 that I I didn't mention last week, but I do want to mention today, is that it's not only uh, written as an acrostic, which if you recall, uh, the first four poems are that every, more or less, every verse of the poem begins with the next letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet. But uh, Lamentations 2 also has a bit of what's called a chiastic design. A chiasm is a form of writing where the first line of something corresponds to the, the last line of something. And then the lines work together in a corresponding sort of ladder step form, Right? Or if you think like a sandwich, right? You have a bun and a bun and then maybe some vegetables and meat in the middle. And so they, they work towards some type of middle point that serves as the, the central 
peace. So here's what I mean with Lamentations 2. In verse, verses 1 and 22, both mention the anger of God. Verses 2 and 21 both mention God's lack of mercy or his lack of pity. Verses 3 and 20 both include uh, consuming type imagery. Verses 4 and 19 both mention pouring out. And, and so on it goes until you get to verses 11 and 12, which sort of form the center of this poem. And in both of these verses, at the centerpiece of this poem, there is a similar theme expressed in both of these, and that is fainting in the street. Why does, and, and, there's a, um, and there's a concern for children, in particular, fainting in the street. And so why, why does this matter? It's because uh, the imagery of, of children and infants starving to death, dying in the streets, dying in their mother's arms, it is in this imagery that we're meant to see the pinnacle of the expression of Israel's suffering. Previously, the poet uh, in the first poem had described Jerusalem as a lonely widow, an abandoned city, or a sexually violated woman. And as, <coughs> sorry, and as grievous as all of those things are, the poet now forces our attention to verses 11 and 12 with this chiastic structure to force us to look to this pinnacle of 11 and 12 where we see him weep over the death of little boys and little girls. And so I want to read verses 11 through 17, and then we'll, uh, we'll get to work. He says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Their cry to their mothers... They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea, who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you faults and deceptive visions, they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we have longed for. Now we see it. We see it. The Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Uh, There are three things I want you to notice with me in, in these verses this morning. First, in verses 11 and 12, we will see the poet weep over um, the suffering of Jerusalem. In verses, or sorry, then in verse 13, we will see the poet attempt to comfort Jerusalem. And third, in verses 14 through 17, we'll see the poet lament all of Jerusalem's enemies. 
So look with me then in the first place, verses 11 and 12, where we see the poet's emotions burst open into tears over the plight of his people. Last week we said that there, there seemed to be a hint of anger arising in the poet as he recounts the brutal acts of God against Jerusalem. But whether there is any anger there or not, here's where it leads. It leads to tears. He says his eyes are spent with weeping. His stomach churns and his bile is poured out on the ground. Why? Because of the destruction of his people. Last week we saw him lament the young women languishing in the streets. This week it's infants. Infants dying in the street, dying in their mother's arms. And his observations of this Woman city suffering have, have led to his breaking down into tears, into to sobbing and weeping. He sees little children fainting in the streets like grown men, and he wretches from the agony of it all. Immediately, there is an application that is thrust upon us, upon us spectators who, who view this tragedy of Jerusalem from a distance, a safe distance of some 2,600 years away. Do we grieve when we see people suffering? Especially when we see God's people suffering. You know, it's, it is a biblical rule that, at least in, in general, right, one reaps what he sows. But does that give us any right to rejoice when a a sinner is suffering right in front of us? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but in the truth. So what what about you? What What about us? When we look on the suffering of others, especially the household of God, do we see it through tear stained eyes, even when that suffering is deserved? He weeps here, especially because of who is suffering. The daughter of my people. His people. And doesn't this, reaching even beyond us, it reminds us of the Lord Jesus. What did Jesus say when he looked out over Jerusalem in Luke 13, 14? Sorry, 13, 34. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So do our hearts go out to the plight of sinners like the poet of Lamentations, like the Lord Jesus? Or do they stand in condemnation over them like the friends of Job who just knew that he was in the wrong and needed to make sure that he knew it? Well, let me reframe this in a more positive note. Because not only should we mourn at the trials of God's people, but we should also rejoice at their triumphs. So rather than merely asking if you have puked, 
because you were in so much agony over the suffering of another Christian. How about this? Have you ever experienced so much joy at the success of another Christian that you couldn't put it into words? Are we rooting one another on? Are we invested in one another such that your joy is bound up in mine and mine in yours, right? When, when you smile, I smile. When you frown, I frown. I hope so. So the poet weeps, and it's instructive for us. But then, he doesn't just weep. He attempts to comfort. And we see this in our second point in verse 13. And the first thing to note here is that he essentially fails. He comes up short. His desire is to come alongside this weeping woman and to witness for her, to speak for her, to advocate for her, and to comfort her. (laughs) But he confesses, what can I say? How can I comfort you? How can I speak for you? Indeed, the refrain of Lamentations 1 was that there was none to comfort. I think we saw it four times in that poem. That there was no one to comfort this grieving widow. Well, here in Lamentations 2, the poet finally makes, I suppose, a valiant attempt to rise to the challenge. To comfort this grieving woman. But he comes up empty. What he finds when he looks at her suffering is that there simply is no, no answer in this moment. Her suffering's too great. Look at what he says. He says, your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The very last part of verse 13. Now this last phrase here underscores the immensity of her suffering. But the question asked here, it it's kind of astounding for two reasons. Or, or the effect that it has might be astounding for two reasons. One, it's because, well, we know the answer. We know the answer to the question, for your ruin is vast as the sea, who can heal you? Like we, we already know the answer to that question. But it doesn't get answered here. So, let's think about each of those. He says, who can heal you? Well, we know. Who can heal a wound as vast as the sea? God. Yahweh himself is, of course, the only one that can heal this wounded woman. Consider Jeremiah 30, beginning in verse 12. The Lord says to To Judah, he says, Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They have not they have they care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe. Why do you cry over your hurt? Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. 
But then down in verse 17 of Jeremiah 30, he says, Behold, I will restore to you your health, and your wounds I will heal, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall rebuild on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. So the Lord has already promised, had already promised, long before this suffering came to be, that he would indeed cure this incurable wound. And as New Testament believers, we, we know that this comes to fruition in, in Christ. Peter says plainly in 1 Peter 2.24 that it is by the wounds of Christ that we are healed. So the promised healing of Jeremiah 30.17 and following is found in the Lord Jesus. But it's helpful to, to see a little bit more fully how they are fulfilled in Christ. And, and um, Greg Beale and Don Carson are helpful here. They, they write in their book on the New Testament's use of the old that Jeremiah 30, verse 1, through 31, verse 40, is a single unit known as the book of consolation. So the promises of Jeremiah 30, 17, are connected with and build toward a climax in the promises of Jeremiah 31, specifically verses 31 through 34, which is where we read about the promise of the new covenant. And then the author to the Hebrews then quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 and 34 in Hebrews 8. And he makes it clear that this new covenant and all of the promises attached to it are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. But that brings us back to verse 13. We know the answer. In a sense, they knew the answer. But why isn't it answered here? Why is the question left merely to hang with no discernible answer in sight? The horror of the city woman's suffering is what takes up the screen here. Not the deep theological answers that provide comfort. This is instructive for us. Because in our own suffering, and in the suffering of others, we tend to want to be very quick to run to truths like God will redeem and God is working out all things for good for those who love Him and God is our refuge. And those things are certainly true. And I definitely don't mean to imply that we should ignore those truths or forget them. But if we are too quick to get there, if we're too quick to run from our suffering to... Uh, to theological truths for comfort, then often what happens is that we short-circuit the ministry of the Spirit to us in our pain and we can't and don't appreciate the depth of real suffering. Right? It's like prescribing uh, medication to someone who doesn't quite realize how sick they are. If we don't really grasp the depth of our pain, then the good news of the gospel message is going to be lost on us. This is what we see happening in the book of Lamentations, right? In the first two poems of the book, there, there are very few 
glimmers of hope. Um, and, and really, in the whole entire book, there's only one clear, uh, unmistakable embrace of hope in the entire book, and that's in chapter 3. And so it's good for us to see what the poet is doing here. The poet observes the woman in her grief. He enters into the grief with her and weeps over her plight. But then he makes no attempt at a trite, theologized word of comfort. He admits up front, what can be said for you? Can I comfort you? It's the first word spoken to her in the book. And admittedly, it is a bleak one. But he does speak to her, right? This is the first time spoken to her, and he he acknowledges he wants to comfort. He just can't. And so, when you are with a suffering person, you're not trying to come up with some magic silver bullet that's going to make him feel better is usually a lost cause. But just be with them. Speak to them. Say something. And trust the Lord. So despite what we even know to be true, and in a sense what the poet even knows to be true, we are asked once more to let the hurt of the woman linger a bit longer. So that's the second point. He attempts to comfort her. Verses 14 to 17 then. We see thirdly and, and finally the poet, pain, um, he painfully counts up all of Jerusalem's aggressors. And the, the point of these verses here is just another instance of he's summing up the totality of her suffering. And he's thrusting it before his own eyes and before the eyes of the audience, asking us once more to look at, at all who had rallied against Jerusalem. Not only... He tries to comfort, but he can't. And she is now, he recognizes, surrounded on all sides by false friends and ferocious enemies. So we're going to look at these verses a little, sort of, kind of backwards. We're going to look at verses, we're going to do it in this order. We're going to do 16, 15, 14, and then we're going to come back to 17. So uh, if there's any chance you were falling asleep, maybe you won't now, trying to keep up. So won't be a steady run through. We're going to look at the enemies, uh, her neighbors, her prophets, and then we'll come back to the Lord in verse 17. So, uh, the acknowledgement in verse 16 that she has enemies that are mocking her is probably not surprising. It's not too much of an insult. What else do you expect enemies to do? When you fall, you would expect your enemies to rejoice. Now, it still hurts when they do. It's not fun to endure the mockery of a professed adversary. But it is, at least, something that shouldn't surprise you. So there's not something especially or particularly painful about an enemy celebrating your destruction. It is really exactly what you would expect. And so that's what he says. Your, your enemies, they rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. And they celebrate a victory. We've swallowed her. 
This is the day we've longed for. But that is something that he builds on from the previous verse. And it's not just the enemies that mock, we see in verse 15, but it's all who pass by. Now, it's not just your enemies waging a war against you on the internet. It's, it's your very neighbors, perhaps. Imagine everyone in your neighborhood stopping by your house to exclaim some type of mockery at your misfortune in your suffering. Maybe you don't really know most of them, and maybe you're not close with, that, with many of them, but that's still going to sting. These are the people that live around me. These are the, the people who have to walk by my house every day. I mean, I don't expect them to react in the way that the poet does here, weeping and puking their guts out. But I don't expect this. But but there it is. They pass by and they hiss. They wag their heads. This is the great city? Really? Doesn't seem so great to me. But again, that, that comes out after verse 14, which is really what started it all off and, and really what you could say is the most painful of all of it. The very ones who had been charged with caring for and guiding Jerusalem safely through her trials and tribulations in life, who were responsible to tell Jerusalem about her sins, to hold her accountable unto holiness, they had deceived her. Right? Right? It's not just your enemies, it's not just your neighbors that you kind of know, but it's the very people that you had entrusted with your spiritual life. It's mentors, pastors, teachers, right? While you must not blame them for your sins, for here, they're absolutely complicit in them. They were complicit in the sins of Jerusalem. They knew what they were doing. They knew the end to which it would lead. But still they said nothing. This dagger goes deep. The prophets of Judah were given a difficult task, of course. But they were responsible before God to do it well. It was literally life or death. Heaven and hell. Now Jeremiah, if you read Jeremiah, was incredibly faithful to his task. And he said some excruciatingly hard and unpleasant things to Judah. <laughs> Here's the response of the false prophets. In Jeremiah fourteen thirteen, they said, You shall not see the sword, Jerusalem, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. They led the people astray. The very people they pretended to care about. And so it all just builds up. Your leaders, your neighbors, your enemies, they've all conspired against you, Jerusalem. And yet, we see in verse 17, who stood behind it all? Once more, we see the sovereignty of God on full display. Yes, the prophets deceived. Yes, the neighbors mocked. Yes, the enemies shouted for joy. But it was God who brought about exactly what he had been warning against for centuries. 
We've made this point several times already in this series, and we will do so again, so I won't belabor the point here. But the point is simple. God does exactly what he says he will do. God hates sin. God judges sin. And all the agonies of the anguishing women were brought upon her by God Almighty. The bitter tears of the weeping poet were caused by the acts of God. So we need to ask ourselves, is God friend or foe? Indeed, if he is your foe, I urge you to seek shelter from his wrath. How do you do so? How do you do that? By turning in faith to the Lord Jesus who endured the hissing and the mocking of neighbors. Who endured the gnashing of the enemy's teeth and their celebrations at his death. And he did it all for sinners like us. So do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Or will we content ourselves yet again to live in rebellion against him? To live out of communion with him? Let me say this word in closing. In Jeremiah 24, God says the false prophets. He says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster will come upon you. He goes on. The pro- he says, I am against the prophets who steal my words from one another. I am against the prophets who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. I am against those who prophesy lying dreams and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. He then tells his people what to do. He says, when one of these people asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden. (laughs) And God says, he will cast him off. So the word, and it's an appropriate word in our day with (coughs) false teachers abounding. The word to false self-promoting men and women who claim to speak for God when he's not in fact sent them is this. They are to stop. And repent. There are many so called pastors and church leaders throughout church history that will have to answer for the lies that they've told. God stands firmly opposed to the one who would speak in his name when he has not sent him. But rather than shouting for joy at that fact, perhaps we should be moved to tears. So let us weep and not rejoice over suffering, any suffering of anyone. Let us strive to offer comfort when we can, realizing our limitations. And let's remember that God will not hold guiltless those who trample on his people.